Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. For the last two years, we've been journeying through Genesis as a community, delving into the origin stories and histories of our faith. In this series of Genesis, we step into the patriarchal families of Abraham and continue to see how both the promise of God is fulfilled, but also the brokenness of man. Ultimately, we see that even though we are the great promise breakers, he is the great promise keeper. We pray that this message is a blessing. Hey, if I've not met you before, I'm, my name is Michael. I serve at New Life. You might see me from now and again. If you don't know who I am, that's awesome because this place is growing so much and so fast that people are new, people are inviting, and God is doing something faithful here. If you've not been, if you came at Easter and you've returned, that you won't know that before Easter, we were in a series called Genesis, all about the great promise keeper, despite the fact that we are the great promise breakers. And to get started today, I recognize some of you are like, what? We're still in that series? We heard a great sermon from James Allen last week. Pastor Alex and Dylan preached beautifully over Easter. I don't even know what the book of Genesis, what? So to help you out today, I'm going to give us a quick recap of where we are. Now, if you come to New Life Brisbane, you'll know. We don't just gloss over Scripture. We like to go deeper into it. We love to really take our time that the practice of preaching Scripture should be one that is done slowly and well. We don't have that luxury today. We could go line by line through the five chapters of Genesis that we have, but you would be here till tomorrow and you would probably not come back next week. Um, And so because we don't want those two things to happen, we're going to hop in a charter plane today, go really high up, And I'm just going to point out really important landscape icons that you just need to know about the story of Joseph for us to understand what God's saying today. Is that okay? Yeah, cool. Um, So already, just a quick note, at Rabina, we have this rule that I'll preach faster if you say amen. All right? Amen? Amen. Awesome. Keep it coming because we're going to need it today. The story of Janet Joseph began back in Genesis. He is born to a father named Isaac, named Jacob, sorry. And Jacob, whose name had changed to Israel, has about 12 children at the time. He will go on to have 13. And Joseph is the youngest of those children. Any other younger children in the room? Fantastic. Hey, for all those who are younger children in the room, the book of Joseph, the story of Joseph is your story. For all those people that say we get badly, that we get spoiled, that everyone looks after us, the book of Joseph is, di- is proof that we are unjustly done by. Amen, younger children? Amen. All those who are older and middle child, you can hate me all you like. It's just the truth. But there's this moment when Joseph is born, he's the youngest child. And like all youngest children, he is actually spoiled. He is actually someone who's his father's favorite son. He has a dream which says that one day all his brothers and fathers will one day worship him. And like most youngest children, thinks that everyone must know how great he will one day be. And so he goes and he tells his father and his brothers. They react in a normal way. They throw him in a normal way. They sell him into slavery. And they, he gets sent into Egypt in a place where they despise. They, they tell his father who loved Joseph that he has been killed by a wild animal. Joseph forgotten, Joseph left alone. Joseph now sold into slavery, finds himself in the middle of a land that he didn't grow up in, sold to a man named Potiphar. But because God was with Joseph, he he becomes quickly elevated to a place in Potiphar's house where he overlooks all of Potiphar's stuff. He is the most trusted one of Potiphar's servants. But then one day, because we have kids in the room, Potiphar's wife comes along and says, I'd love you to play with me in the sandbox. And Joseph says, actually, you should be only playing with Potiphar in the sandbox. I'm not going to play with you. 
Now, repeatedly, for those of you who aren't aware of what I'm talking about, Pastor Alex would love to explain it to you after the service. Repeatedly, she approaches him to play in the sandbox, and he says no. Until one day, she says, you must do this with me. And she grabs his cloak. He leaves the cloak behind and runs out of the house. She goes to Potiphar and says, he played with me in the sandbox. And, he gets, and Joseph gets thrown into prison. Forgotten son, unjustly tried slave. And now, again, he's a desperate prisoner. And in this moment, Joseph continues to serve God faithfully. And as he does, he gets elevated again in a moment where he becomes the head of the, all the prisoners in, this, in, the, in the jail. But the moment changes when he begins to interpret dreams for a baker and a food tester for the Pharaoh. When they get released from prison, he says to them, friends, please do not forget me. But as they leave, they forget who he is. They go into Pharaoh's courts until one day where we pick the story up this afternoon. One of them hears that Pharaoh has a dream a dream that no one can interpret. And something triggers in their mind and they think, hang on, I remember a man who used to be able to interpret dreams. His name is Joseph. He's laying in a prison somewhere. And we enter the story there, friends. We enter the story this afternoon in a moment where Joseph is finally elevated to a position where he gets to speak to a king and God is on his side. What happens next is the Pharaoh, who's known as like the divine one, he is considered God himself in the room. And in that moment, God himself, Pharaoh in that room, says to Joseph, I've had two dreams. These dreams are kind of the dreams you'd have after bad indigestion. They involve cows and wheat and a whole bunch of weird things. But Joseph says, I can actually, in fact, Pharaoh, interpret your dream. In verse 15 of Genesis 41, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. And in that moment, he says to Pharaoh, you'll have seven years of plenty in Egypt, but after seven years, you'll have seven years of famine. Pharaoh, what you need to do is you need to appoint a man who will be able to look after Egypt on your behalf, store all the excess grain for seven years, and in seven years you will have plenty. And then Pharaoh says, where in all of Egypt will I find such a man? And Pharaoh steps forward, and Joseph steps forward like, you rang? And he steps into a moment where he gets appointed second in charge out of all of Egypt. In Genesis 41, verse 39, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to you to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Let's take a deep breath there together. Where have we started? Favored son, estranged slave, accused abuser, forgotten prisoner, and now Joseph, governor of Egypt. This story has more ups and downs than a roller coaster at a good theme park, friends. If you haven't been paying attention, none of us would want to live Joseph's life until the very end point. But this famine that ends up striking Egypt after seven years of plenty doesn't just hit Egypt. It spreads throughout the whole Middle East. In fact, a land far, far away from Egypt known as Canaan, there are 12 brothers, a mother and a father who are starving. Joseph's family, long thinking he is gone or dead or a slave in Egypt, they long for food and they hear of food in Egypt. And in verse 42, we read that when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? I wonder if Jacob's brothers, if Jacob's sons were looking at each other, because when they heard there was food in Egypt, they thought to themselves, we know who else is in Egypt. It was a reminder 
of the guilt they had for selling their brother into slavery. And Joseph's father says to them, he continued, I have that there, I've heard there is grain in Egypt, so go down there and buy some for us so that we may not live, that we may live and not die. They come to Egypt, and in a weird moment of fate, Joseph's brothers come before him. They don't recognize him as governor, and he commands they all bow down before him. They bow down, and if you remember that moment of his first dreams, where the wheat, the moon, the sun, the stars all bow before Joseph, we see the intricately weaving of God's plan over time as it begins to be fulfilled. But Joseph, Joseph isn't in a moment where he is ready to reveal it to his brothers who he is. He doesn't know if he can trust them. He doesn't know if they're going to sell someone else into slavery. He wants to know if their hearts have changed. And so he leads them on the next three chapters on possibly one of the most unfair goose chases of all time. He sends them away, tells them to come back. They go home to Canaan. They come back again. And eventually they bring their youngest brother, who was born after Joseph was sold into slavery, back into Egypt. And in this moment, Joseph sees Benjamin. Now, I want you to picture this. He sees Benjamin, his youngest brother who he's never met, who's had a life that should have been his, who's had a life that he deserved. And he worries that his youngest brother is going to be treated by his elder brothers the same way he was. So he tests them. And Joseph gives them grain again. But instead, this time, he sneaks his favorite cup into Benjamin's luggage and sends them away. And as Joseph, the second in command of Egypt, sends them away, he then orders all of his armies to chase them down. And he comes and approaches them and he says, you have stolen my cup. And they say, none of us will have stolen your cup. And he turns to them and says, if one of you have stolen my cup, what will I do? And Judah, the eldest brother, says, if any of us have taken your cup, you can kill him in exchange for what we've done wrong. They look through everyone's luggage until they come upon Benjamin's, upon which they reveal the cup. And Judah and his brothers grieve deeply. And in a moment, Joseph sees that these brothers who at the beginning of the story were happy to sell him into slavery, who were happy to lie to their father, are now deeply grieved by the way that their youngest brother is going to be treated. And something shifts in Joseph's life. In fact, the story ends in verse 40, in chapter 45, 44, where Judah pleads before Joseph. He says this, Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. There are some of you that weren't here on the first week of Joseph's story. So this is going to be a lot for you. But there are those of you who are, who were, you remember how Judah acted when Joseph was considered to be the greatest amongst the family. He was ready to kill him. He was ready to sell him. And here in a moment, we see a deep change of heart that proves God has been at work, not just in Joseph's life, but has transformed the heart of his brothers as well with the guilt and, and grief of their sin. And Joseph responds in chapter 45, verse 1 to 3. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Verse 40, in verse 7, he goes on and says, See, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance, so that it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
And friends, for those of you who have been gripping the end of your seats, wondering when the us journey through Joseph come to an end, that's where we're pausing for today. But I want you to hear two things. There are two things I want to talk about this afternoon as we land. The first one is this. The key theme from all of Genesis is literally this. God prevails. But the second theme would be this. Because forgiveness wins. God prevails, friends, because forgiveness wins. And with the cacophony of children's voices, this is the moment we're now going to pray that Michael will only preach for another 15 minutes. Would you join with me as we pray? Let's close our eyes together. Gracious God, as we step, come before you today, I pray, Lord, not only would you help me brief, uh, preach in a way which is to the point and clear, but Father, would your word not return void? Would you remind us of your goodness? And would you shape us by your power? Less of me, more of you. And all God's people said, amen. If you could read the, the end of your life, if you could know how your life finished, would you find out? If someone would write, would show you the last chapter of your story, would you want to read it? Would you want to read it? Hands up, who would? Hands up, who would? Ah, fantastic. There's only like three of us. There's a bunch of us who would say no. See, the interesting thing is I found out the other day, and I spoke about this recently, there's a group of people in the world who I find um, in deep need of prayer ministry. There's some people who read a book from start to finish. And there's another group of people who read a book by first flicking to the last chapter first and reading the end before the beginning. Hands up if that is you, if you read the last chapter first. Hey, I'm not sure if you guys know, but that's not okay. That is bizarre. It is weird. And Alex would love to do one-on-one pastoral counseling with you at some stage in the future. It's, it, I, I, I can't understand. And I think I may be wrong, but I think the reason why there are these two people, three, in the audience today who actually do this, it's because we can't bear the standing of walking through all the suffering of the whole story without knowing how the story ends. Will Frodo get the ring into the volcano? Will Harry overcome Voldemort? Will... Mufasa still be around by the end of the movie? No. There's this sense, <laughs> well, you don't have to watch or read it now, do you? Where I think we shortcut it. And sometimes it's because we want to know, is the story actually worth engaging in? And I say that, friends, because unlike all of us, Joseph got a sneak peek of the last couple pages of his book, didn't he? He actually got to read, hear how the story ends. One day, others will bow down before you. Others will bow down before you when he was quite a young man. And like most people who are young, when they're hearing things before their time, he overassumes it, he acts in pride, and he goes and he pushes everyone else down because he thinks his story is going to be filled with victory and triumph. But we know actually the story plays out differently. That all throughout Joseph's life, what we see are these repeated points of pain and of suffering, of hurt, of trouble, And I wonder, friends, if you knew how your story would end, how would you act? How would you act? See, the friends here, the the truth is, not many of us do know the future. So what hope can we hold on to today? It's a simple hope of this, that one day we can hold on to this truth. God will prevail. God will prevail. Joseph, in the story, in Genesis chapter 45, verse 7, what does he say to his brothers? When they come to him and they come bowing down before him, they're like, Joseph, we can't believe it's you. There's an awkward moment where his brothers, he says, hey guys, it's Joseph. It's not a governor about to kill you, it's me. And they look at him, not in adulation, they look at him in fear. Why? Because they're going, oh no, 
please forget what we did to you when you were 13. Right now, those of you who are the younger sibling, you and I both know, because I'm a younger sibling, we never forget what was done to us when we, was, when we were 13. We remember for the rest of our lives, right? But in this moment, they're horrified. And how does Joseph respond? I want you to pick this up. There is a moment when those people who have caused him pain and suffering are laying before him, and he has the ultimate power in the room. How does he use it? Verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. You intended to harm me, he says again in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Friends, there are some of us in this room today who are in the middle of situations that feel a little bit beyond our control. Can I be real? I've got a couple of those playing out for me right now. I've got a three-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, and that's enough of a storm just in my household, right? But there's more than that playing out. There are some of us here who you're actually just hanging on, and you're wondering, am I going to be okay? I wonder how Joseph felt when he was sold into slavery. I wonder how Joseph felt when he was falsely accused. I wonder how Joseph felt when he did everything right in prison, and yet it still turned out badly for him. There is something that God wove into Joseph's story that we can learn today. Because there are some of us here that feel out of control, that feel like we don't know what's going to happen next. But there is a truth from Joseph's story that is painted through every bit of the Bible, that our God prevails. Now, there's a really important truth here. There's important truth that some of us may be walking through things that are evil, that are walking through things that are dark, that are walking through things that are not okay. And I want to be very clear, evil does not come from God. Evil does not come from God. And we can confuse God prevailing with God enacting evil upon us. And that is a really dangerous truth. Friends, my, my mother, a couple years ago, went through cancer. I believe cancer is an evil that God did not long for this world. That He does not want it for us. It was not His original creator. I do not believe God gave my mother cancer. But as I stand here today, and I remember praying by her bedside, God, would you heal her? God, would you heal her? To which... The answer was only through medicine would my mother receive her health back again. But as I look back, and in the moment it didn't make sense, but now I look back at what was meant for evil, and I see the good that has come from it. That there was deep suffering and pain. But there is a truth of the Christian story, not that we will never experience darkness, but that our God is not intimidated by the darkness in this world. It may not have come from Him, but he prevails over all of it. One of my best friends, a guy named John Tyson, he says it like this, God is sovereign. John Tyson's not my best friend, but I believe he'll listen to this podcast one day and realize he's missed out on a lot of relationship. God is sovereign over all things, but that doesn't mean he causes all things. It means that he is greater than all things and can work through all things, even the darkest moments of our lives. There are some of you here today who have done darkness. That was not God's intention for you. There are some of you here today who have suffered at the hands of evil. I can boldly say that was not God's intention for you because whilst God prevails over all, He also does not rob humans of agency. That there are things that are evil in this world, not because God created them, but because man initiated them out of the sinful desires of our heart. That what the enemy purposed for evil, the Bible tells us, God turns for good. 
And you see this in Joseph's story. See, friends, the truth of, of our lives is that if we could all stand on that last day and look back, I bet you and guarantee you it would all make sense. Our story is one that will only make sense in reverse. But we're asked to have faith in the moment. And when we feel like God is out of control, like we are out of control, what do we do? We remember the story of Joseph. Remember the story of Abraham who waited 100 years of infertility for God's promise. Remember the story of Joseph who was, who was falsely accused, continually misaligned. We remember the story of all throughout the Bible of David who was chased by his father-in-law for doing the right thing. We remember the story of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah who stood and lived during times when the world was dark and they longed for a greater hope. We remember the story of Israel throughout the whole Old Testament who clung to the idea that one day God would make all things new again. We remember the story of Jesus showing up at just the right time, that God takes what the world purpose for evil and He shows that He is not intimidated by it. He doesn't blink in the face of darkness. He says, throw your worst and I'll still turn it into something beautiful. There are people in this room today, not many, who have gray hair. Feel free to look at them now. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I guarantee you, for those people who are still Christians with gray hair, in fact, let me say this. There are people in your world that you deeply respect who still have faith. But you don't respect them because their life was easy. You respect them because for some reason they've reached the end. Maybe not the end. Bruce, still another 20 years, brother. They've reached a season of their life where they're still standing strong. Not because they held on to God, because they're living testimony and proof that God holds on to them. In the middle of the storm, friends, the disciples cried out to Jesus, do you not care that we are about to die? How can you sleep in the storm? We read the story in the Gospels. And what does Jesus hop up and say? Where is your faith? Why? Not because the storm wasn't great, but because Jesus wasn't worried. See, friends, sometimes in the middle of that lack of control, the question we need to ask is not, God, God, why am I here? But God, actually, what are you doing? What are you doing right now? Why? Because God prevails. A man named Kenneth, Keith, uh, Kenneth Keithley says it like this, God is able to exercise his sovereignty primarily by his omniscience. In this way, God controls all things, but is not the determinative cause of all things. What's he saying here? He's ultimately saying just chiefly this, hey, God is weaving together all the broken strands that have been initiated by humanity's evil and sinful desires and by some things that are just the result, the, the result of entropy and the brokenness of our world. And he's saying, this is not where the story ends. This is why in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, what do we read? That God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And friends, there are some of you here today that you're sitting in a moment where you're struggling with your mental health, where you're sitting in a moment and you've got to face work tomorrow and you don't want to rock up, where you've got to go home to a family, a marriage, a relationship, an isolated moment. You're like, I, this doesn't feel good. Michael, that verse on the screen is offensive to me. In the middle of prison, I guarantee you it was probably offensive to Joseph. So what do we do? There's a beautiful story of a pastor in America whose son uh, took his life. And as he walked through this, he read this text that's on the screen. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And he, he says this as he hopped up 10 days after his son's death. 
I cannot make my son's death fit into this passage. It's impossible for me to see how anything good can come out of it. Yet I realize I only see in part. I only know in part. This man says this, it's like the miracle of a shipyard. Almost every part of great seagoing vessels are made of steel. If you take any single part of that steel steel plate off the hull of that great vessel and throw it into the ocean, the steel will sink straight away. Steel doesn't float. But when the shipbuilders are finished, when the last plate has been riveted in place, then that massive steel ship is virtually unsinkable. Taken by itself, my son's death, he writes, is senseless. Thrown into the sea of Romans 8 verse 28, and it sinks. Still, I believe that when the eternal shipbuilder has finished, when God has worked out his perfect design, even this senseless tragedy will somehow work out for our eternal good. Friends, we as Christians believe that the testimony of Scripture is that God doesn't blink when the world throws its worst. He says, I've got this. And it will only make sense in reverse. But do you trust me? John Tyson, once again, goes on. He says, God's sovereignty is not a burden to be shouldered, but a comfort to be embraced. And I also want to challenge those of you who are going, Marcus doesn't answer well the the question of suffering and evil. No, it doesn't. Because that's not something you can do in a sermon very well. It's something you can do through a life. Find someone who's walked the journey before you and ask them, why are you still walking with Jesus? With all the pain. And they will tell you of a hope that cannot be squashed by a dark moment. You know, the second thing that we read today is that forgiveness wins. Forgiveness wins. In the 1960s, a young girl was asked to be the first black daughter, black child to go to school in New Orleans. And it was this moment when Ruby, this young girl, was on her way to school in a car and she found out that all of the white parents had taken her, their children out of the school because she was attending it. And her parents said to her, hey, on your way to school, as you see the lines of protesters marching, this is what we want you to do, pray. So she did. But one day she forgot to pray. And as she left the car, she walked her way to the schoolyard. There's this moment where she even saw a coffin with an effigy or a likeness of herself held up in front of her face as people were shouting words of death and, and, and threats to this young girl who just wanted an education. And this one day she was seen to be muttering something towards them. They provided her with a child psychologist. So they said to her, uh, the child psychologist that night said, Ruby, what were you doing when you were on your way to the school? Why were you talking to the protesters? She says, oh, no, I wasn't talking. I was praying. She went back to coloring in. I said, Ruby, what were you praying? She says, I just said this. Please, God, forgive these people. Because even if they say these mean things, they don't know what they're doing. So you can forgive them, just like you did those folks a long time ago when they said terrible things about you. I've never had my effigy held up in a coffin. But I've got to tell you the truth. I'm not as fast to forgive as Ruby. And it's too true, so I want to let you know today, God prevails because forgiveness wins. We will all one day need to forgive. Therefore, we will all need to know the truth that we are forgiven. Be careful with that microphone, Arthur. That seems like a great place to leave it. 
because forgiveness wins. At a family summit a couple of years ago, a man named Donald Trump, you may have heard of him before, uh, was asked, does he believe that God has forgiven him? And in response, he said this, I do not believe I need forgiveness. I do not believe I need forgiveness because I've never done anything wrong. And the things I have done wrong, I've just tried to make it right on my own. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. Friends, this is not a question about whether or not you should vote for Donald Trump or whether or not you can be a Christian and not know that you first need to be forgiven. See, the story of Joseph clearly is one that is laced with the need of forgiveness. But it's also a terrible story to talk about forgiveness with. Because very few of you will need to be forgiven as the second in charge of Brisbane, as the person who hurt you lays before you needing desperately to have food that only you can provide. That's a very easy place for someone in power to offer forgiveness. So often when we have to offer forgiveness, it's not from a place of power, but a place of pain, a place of hurt, a place of trial. And the first thing that we, that we do, so often we decide if someone deserves our forgiveness. So what does it really mean to forgive? When I was in school, when someone used to hit you, you used to be like, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it when they said sorry. And a teacher would come along. I don't know if you remember this. They would say, don't say that's okay. It's not okay. You say, I forgive you. And I'm like, oh, okay. I forgive you. And I'm like, so I'm forced to forgive other people. That was the lesson I learned in primary school. Friends, forgiveness is not something you can be forced to do. It's something that's got to flow from a reality you've experienced. And only forgiven people know how to forgive. Because only forgiven people know to trust the God that prevails. See, those of you in the room who are anything like me know that we are all fallen short of the glory of God. That there was a moment when I needed forgiveness. That I've done inexcusable things. And God, in that darkest moment, saw my worst deed. And he stepped into it and he offered forgiveness. And it's only from that place that I can gain the strength to know what forgiveness looks like. But the way that we often forgive in our world is so messed up and so lacking biblical integrity. We forgive those we believe have done enough to deserve forgiveness. This man, a quick, simple way to understand forgiveness is simply this. Forgiveness is choosing to not make the other person pay. Forgiveness lets go of revenge. Forgiveness says, I will never need you to pay me back. It lets go of the need for an apology. In this story, Joseph offers his brothers forgiveness. I've got to be clear again, it's actually a really terrible story to learn forgiveness from because very few of us will ever be in a situation like this. But the reality for Joseph is the same reality for us. When Joseph was in prison, when Joseph was enslaved, he seemed to, I believe, become familiar with the heart of a God who was great in compassion, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And this character of God he knew in his darkness was a God that he also knew at his heights. And maybe, who knows, Joseph also needed forgiveness from God at different stages along the journey and did not find God resisting, but found God plentiful in what he offered in return. Friends, the only way that we could actually ever learn anything from the story of Joseph is, first of all, if we can see forgiveness in our own story. A guy named C.S. Lewis says this, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to forgive somebody. It's a beautiful idea whilst it's our forgiveness we need 
It's a terrible idea whilst it's others. So the first place I want to start today as we wrap up is simply to ask this, do you know how much you need, to need, you need forgiveness? The Bible testimony is this, that we are all fallen short of the glory of God, but only few people will ever recognise it. A farmer told a story of a sheep and a pig that he lost one day. And he went out searching for the sheep and this pig. And he found them in a mud pit because the sheep was, was calling for him. Bah, the sheep said, <clears throat> beautiful sheep. And he looked at the pig and the pig wasn't calling for help. The pig was wallowing in the mud. Same situation. Only one of the animals realised it was in desperate need of rescue. Friends, we all wallow in the mud of our own shame, our own sin, our own unforgiveness. But we're either a sheep or we're a pig. We wallow in darkness or we call out for help from the one that walks in the light. And I just want to ask a simple question today. Have you been forgiven? Have you come today carrying guilt and shame and hurt? You don't need to leave that way. Joseph's brothers came in such a way where they carried condemnation. They carried pain. They carried hurt. And Joseph often throughout the story wept in response to seeing his brother's discomfort. I need you to know, friends, that God weeps in response to the way many of you carry about your lives. If His coming to church is going to make it better any more than sitting in Maccas is going to make you full. There's something that needs to take place, a transaction that needs to happen. I want to ask you simply this. Have you walked in here with shame and you're ready to leave with forgiveness? What's on offer today? There are some of you here today who are Christians who believe you have been forgiven. But when I ask you, is there anyone in your life that needs forgiveness? And you jump to the conclusion of no. I just want you to pause for a moment. Who's that person that if they rocked up today, you would be a little less happy to see them? If someone said their name, you would be quick to tell others their reputation. Who's that person right now that you're just sitting there going, I they need to do something before I can ever move forward. Forgiveness, weirdly, isn't an action that waits for an apology. It's something that is offered from a deep place of grace. And what we see in Joseph is not brothers who offered an apology, but brothers who were mercilessly standing before Him. They were at the end of their rope and it was only because of the compassion of Joseph's heart that he could offer them what they did not deserve. We sometimes get forgiveness confused, saying that forgiveness means that it's okay. Forgiveness means that this injustice is fine. That forgiveness means that everything is wiped away. It never happened. If you want to hear a great sermon on forgiveness, Aaron preached one last year during our series on prayer. I'd encourage you to go listen to it. But forgiveness isn't the same as reconciliation as Aaron spoke about last year. Forgiveness doesn't mean that people don't go to jail. Forgiveness doesn't mean that people don't pay the price for their crime. Forgiveness simply means this, that you recognise that even if someone went to jail for what they did to you, it wouldn't be enough because revenge is an ever hungry beast. Forgiveness says no matter what the consequence may be for that person, I choose to let go the need for an apology, for revenge, or for me to get the justice I feel I deserve because it's holding me down and it's making me look nothing like my Saviour. Friends, there's some of you here today that are waiting for a moment that will never come. And it's holding you from knowing the love and the forgiveness that Christ has for you because Christ says forgiveness is an economy. You can only receive what you are choosing to give. 
And I wonder if the reason why we do this is as Miroslav Volf would say, is because what we do when someone hurts us is we are really fast to make that person a monster. But when we hurt others, we love to paint ourselves as just an accident prone human being. Miroslav Volf says it like this, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of God, of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity and herself from the spheres of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. What's he saying there? Friends, when we make other people worse than us, what we so often do is we think that we've never hurt anybody. We want others to give us mercy whilst we mete out God's justice. God says that's no way to live. That's no way for forgiveness to be made known because unforgiveness is the path to bitterness. But it's also the fastest way to let go of God's forgiveness of us. We don't forgive others because we believe there is a limit sometimes to how much we think God can even forgive the stuff that we've done wrong in our lives. Martin Luther King would say, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. This coming from a man who forgave the very people who bombed his house while his wife and children slept. There's a man a couple of years ago who was in North Island and his daughter Marie and he were hanging out. She was adult at the time. And the IRA bombed the hospital where they were waiting to be seen. And in the middle of the rubble, he called out to her and said, Maria, is that your hand? She says, yes, that's my hand. And she squeezed him. He then said, are you all right? She said, yes, dad, I'm all right. Five minutes later, he says, Maria, are you still all right? And she simply said, daddy, I love you very much. Those were the last words she spoke. When they uncovered her, discovering that she had passed away, he was deeply grieved. And the reporters gathered around him in the days to come saying, what would you want to say to those terrorists that bombed, those terrorists that hurt, those terrorists that took this from you? He simply said this, don't ask me for a purpose. I don't have a purpose. I don't have an answer, but I know there has to be a plan. If I don't think that, I would, I would take this away. I would take my own life. It's a part of a greater plan and God is good and we shall meet again. I've lost my daughter and I shall miss her, but I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. I shall pray for those people, those terrorists who hurt us tonight and every night. May God forgive them. Sky Jathani says it like this, does forgiveness mean we don't care about justice? Does forgiveness mean there is no consequence for evil? No, what it means is that we leave justice and vengeance in God's hands. He alone can judge rightly. Our job as agents of His kingdom on earth is to break the cycles of hatred, to move from a people of exclusion to a people of embrace, forgiving others just as God and Christ has forgiven us. And we see this played out in Christ's life, don't we? When He was stripped, when his side was pierced, when he hung from a cross, surrounded by those his hands had created, screaming for his death, what did he say? Father, forgive them. Not because it feels good. Not because it feels right. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Friends, forgiveness is literally this. It's saying the hatred, the hurt, the cycle stops 
with me. Abraham gave birth to Ishmael and Isaac, two brothers that would hate each other and give birth to nations that would hate each other for the rest of time. Isaac gave birth to Jacob and Esau, two brothers that would hate each other and go on to sin against each other and continue dysfunction. Jacob gave birth to 12, 13 sons that would be so dysfunctional they would sell one of their brothers into slavery. At some point, we have to recognize the generational hurt and brokenness kept being passed down until Joseph chose, the hurt stops with me. The hatred stops with me. There are some of you here today that need to have the boldness to say, Christ, may I know your forgiveness so that the cycle of pain stops with me and won't be passed to the next generation. That takes courage. That takes fearlessness. But you know what it really takes? It needs a Saviour to show us the way. That we might be the words the sky, Jathani would say, our job as agents of the kingdom is to break the cycles of hate, to move from a people of exclusion to a people of embrace, forgiving others just as God and Christ has forgiven us. Friends, God prevails because forgiveness wins. Will we be a people of forgiveness today? Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Father, I just want to say thank you so much to children who have sat through a sermon far too long for their attention spans. But God, I just pray right now across this room for there are people here who have carried shame and doubt and guilt into this place that should not need to. That should not leave in that way. Friends, if you're here and when I talked about wallowing in mud, you're sitting here and you're going, man, Michael, I have so much shame today. All you need to do is cry out for a Savior who offers forgiveness in return for your guilt. Friends, if you need to know Christ's forgiveness today, that He might wash you clean and bring you home, I wonder right now, wherever you are across this room, would you just raise your hand right now in this moment? If you want to walk out of here set free from shame, set free from guilt, would you raise your hand right now? Thanks, brother. Keep your hands raised for a moment longer. It's awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Friends, we're just going to pray with some people who've got their hands raised right now. And I am... one of you would pray with them nice and loud. We, we pray this together. Dear Jesus, let's do it again. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Would you take away my shame? Thank you for dying on a cross. Teach me to follow you as my Savior, my Lord, and my friend. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, I pray for those who raise their hands today. Would your forgiveness flow through their bodies right now and wash them clean, purify them, but don't just forgive them, Father. Lead them as your disciples and your children. Friends, the second kind of person I want to pray for today is real simply this. Are there people here who need to forgive? There are people in your world who you need to forgive before justice has been meted out. There's someone who's walked in today with hurt, with pain, and it's eating you up. Only through the power of Jesus Christ can you know how to be set free from that. Friends, if that's you today, I'm just going to ask you to do something simple. Just open your hands in front of you. If there's someone in your world that needs forgiveness, we just open your hands in front of you today. Every time I preach this, I realize I've got like five. Would you open your hands in front of you? Jesus, today we bring those parents before you. We bring those brothers or sisters or friends or colleagues or employers. And Lord, they hurt us and there is no justice yet. All the justice that has happened has not been enough. 
So Jesus, give us the strength right now and the power to forgive, to say the pain and the hurt stops with us, that we'd be agents of your kingdom, for your glory and the good of the world, we pray. In Jesus' name, all those people said, amen. Friends, would you stand to your feet? We're going to respond now in worship. The kids have sounded like they've had fun the whole way through the sermon. But I can tell you this. I remember distinctly watching my parents worship God while I colored in on the ground. But I asked questions, why are they raising their hands? Do they know that it's a bit more stinky when they do that? Why are they, why are they singing so loudly? Does dad know he can't sing in tune? But all I remember is having a mum and dad who taught me what it meant to love Jesus, whether I was ready to understand it or not. So I just want to let you know today, there's a generation watching. What will it know about how we respond to Jesus now? Would you worship Him with us? Would you glorify our King? Let's sing together. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.